You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It was just a piece of tape on a door, but it would change history. When Frank Wills sees it, he thinks very little of it. The gray duct tape had been used to hold open the lock in the basement door at the Watergate office complex, part of a tony section of Washington, D.C., where Frank Wills worked as a security guard. Checked the basement floor, and I found a small piece of uh, adhesive tape placed across the latch of the door leading into the uh, office building. Um, I found the first piece of tape, I took it off, and I put it in my pocket, and I continued making my security check within the building. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. His job was to patrol around the area and see if anything was amiss. Specifically, he was to check doors. And he did that in what is still June 16, 1972. The Watergate complex in the foggy bottom area of Washington, D.C., the star tenant with the whole sixth floor was the Democratic National Committee. But not too much happened at the office complex. He removes the tape, secures the door, and puts it in his pocket. He also makes a note in his security log, a log that will become famous. At this point, he's not thinking anything. It's common for maintenance people in the Watergate complex to keep the doors open. That way they don't have to keep opening it. Nonetheless, he follows his procedures. Wills' job is repetitive. All of this walking around, checking doors over and over again, but it's better than Wills' previous job, at least he thinks so. It pays a little better than his Detroit security job where, in a retail store confronting a shoplifter, he was held up. And it sure beats that hot automobile factory where his job was to put bumpers on cars. One of the lowest level jobs on the assembly line. He had to do over and over again with very little hope of advancement. Wills finishes his rounds, and his job at this point is actually to patrol through the whole building again, and then to do it again. He doesn't, because he's hungry, and also because there is supposed to be no one in the Watergate office complex at this time, nearing midnight, and there is. The Watergate building was supposed to be something else than what it's known for. 
It's kind of strange that it's associated with political scandal to the point that everything that happens now is a gate. Prior to becoming a city within a city on the banks of the Potomac, this property was the manufacturing plant for the Washington Gaslight Company. And the Foggy Bottom neighborhood was loaded with industrial stuff. Nobody really wanted to develop on it. No one could imagine that it would become this really she-she hotel. But Italian construction firm, SGI, saw promise in the waterfront location. They purchased the land for $10 million. That's a deal. That's a deal. And they pick an Italian architect. He sees those kind of gas towers and says this could be something. He also is influenced by Italian architecture and things going on in Europe. He also is influenced by the Kennedy Performing Arts Center. There's a lot of opposition. There's concerns about height. You have to go through national boards and local boards. Um, There's some fear that it's going to overshadow the Lincoln Memorial. People say it looks strange. It looks like a pair of teeth. It has this circular design that opens up into the water, just like its name. But Watergate East, the first building in the complex where people will actually reside, opens up in October 1965. And it's just in time for D.C.'s population to be going not up, but down. 760,000, where in 1950, it had 40,000 more residents. That's not a matter for SGI, for the realtors that are going to sell it. Their plan is to target women, particularly richer suburban women, saying, this is 65. We've already beginning to see the problems with suburbs. They're boring. It was you, the wives of America, rather than the men in the family, who decided that congestion, noise, and disorder of the cities would no longer be tolerated. The president of Riverview Realty Corps says. He's in charge of sales and management for Watergate. And he's speaking at a luncheon in 65. But suburbia didn't answer the promises we looked for. So Watergate is going to be one of many common things to see from, I would say, 62 to, say, 75 or so, where you have these office complexes that just have everything in them, enclaves. Like, the city's a disaster. We're going to give you residents everything within this complex. Now, a lot of those, just like shopping malls, have kind of faded. And and it's like, why would I want to go to the places within the building I live? But you still see some of that today. Best of both worlds. Convenience of urban living, but the safety of a suburb. In 66, the Watergate shopping mall, with things residents can use. A Safeway, grocery store, people's drugstore, other amenities. Then a hotel opens in 67. So does the Watergate office building. In 1969, Life magazine says, In Washington, it used to be about Georgetown. Now, it's Watergate. Just everyone lives there. And it's true. The average resident, aged 50, and arrives with more dogs than children. It immediately became very attractive for senators. Edward Brooke of Massachusetts, Senator Jacob Javits, Wayne Morse, President Secretary Rosemary Woods, President's uh, Attorney General, and his wife, Martha Mitchell. This night, as we indicated, there wasn't supposed to be someone in the building. And yet there was. An intern, Bruce Givner, 
Givner is still not a person that's widely known in this Watergate story. We're talking about Frank Willis, the security guard who discovers the Dora chart, but actually uh, Givner's here and he's not even told in some of the accounts of the story. Uh, and that was just fine with him at the time. Givner is a intern for the Democratic Party. His work ends around 7.30, his intern work, and then he decides to take advantage of something that the Democratic National Committee office has, free long distance. Now, you know, it's not something that Givner should be doing technically, but it doesn't cost anything because the type of white area line, telephone line, that the Democratic Party has secured for the office allows free long distance calls. So as Givner says, the newspapers later, he called old girlfriends, he called friends from his hometown, even he starts calling professors from UCLA, he calls his parents. This is while Wills is, is, is doing his patrol as he's making these long distance calls. What he nor Wills knows is that Givner is being watched. They must get extremely frustrated because he's throwing off a plan that the people that will turn out to be Nixon's plumbers have to enter the Democratic National Committee office building and replace the non-working eavesdropping systems that they had already installed. So the actual Watergate actually happens in May 1972, 28th of May. The 16th going into the 17th is the repair job, the attempted repair job. I didn't know I was screwing up their timing, Givner would say later. Gordon Liddy, one of the, um, who was running this unit, uh, says there was a man working in the back very, very late. I mean, he stayed and he stayed and he stayed. It's a Friday night. That was some dedicated Democrat. Liddy says, well, what he doesn't know is he's talking to folks and talking to his parents. And uh, at a certain point, around 10 p.m., he has to go to the bathroom and he gets up to leave. There must have been relief on the part of the people watching this from across the street at the Howard Johnson Hotel. Like, okay, he's getting up to leave. He has to go to the bathroom. So he realizes if I go out that door, I can't keep the lock open. So he go walks out on the balcony and relieves himself in one of the planters. He's being watched this whole time. Finally, about 12.05, he's done with his phone calls, leaves the office, locks the door behind him, and goes down. And there, he encounters Frank Wills, the security guard. The two talk. It's very pleasant. Uh, explains who he is. Frank Wills does not know Bruce Gibner. And um, he says, Wills says, would you please sign out? And Gibner's like, well, I didn't actually sign in, so I don't have to sign out. This is D.C. in the 1970s. This isn't high security. Doesn't push the issue. That's going to become very important later. Then Gibner says, do you know of a restaurant in the area? And Wills is, uh, says, yes, is Howard Johnson's across the street has great food. And whether it's kind of like Givner, who seems like a pretty talkative fellow, we have documentation of that, just kind of being in the South and sort of Southern charm type thing or, or whatever it is. Givner and Wills both go to the Howard Johnson's, get some hamburgers, get some uh, fries and milkshake. Before Wills goes with Givner, he secures the building behind him. Right? No one can get into the Watergate office who is not in it. Givner goes off in his motorcycle. It is then that Wills comes back, goes back to his patrol, 
And he goes back to that basement door and sees that the tape that he had removed, there's now new tape put on the same door. Someone's in the building. He's not alone. And they shouldn't be. And it's not that intern or anyone in the DNC because he had just seen the last person there off. I didn't take chance to look out the door. I just uh, ran up, you know, and uh, to the security desk on the main floor. And I called the Metropolitan Police and I, you know, reported that I thought something was suspicious. And they came. And um, when we discovered that the door that led compl- directly into the... Uh, Democratic National Committee headquarters has been, was broken into. That's Wills talking to Geraldo Rivera later. As he says, he calls the police. Police come immediately. The elevators of the building are shut down. The police arrive and find five people in the DNC office. Wills joins the cops as they go in. When we turn the lights on, one person, then two persons, then three persons came out and down the line. It should be said at this point, even though that Watergate's initially not going to be taken enormously seriously, not like a presidential event yet, um, the police do take this moment seriously. This is a come-out-with-your-hands-up moment for all of these burglars. It is surprising that they're all wearing suits. That's not the normal thing. They'd expect, like, ski masks and things like this. When they find the equipment that they're holding, the police think it could be a bomb of some type. Very concerned. Till so an FBI agent is called in and he says, no, that's not a bomb-making equipment. That's eavesdropping equipment, and we know. The booking officer at the police station noticed something, too. You have a fellow named Ed Carter. He's not Ed Carter. That's James McCord. I know him. He's the security director for the president's re-election campaign. So what happens here for Fred Wills? Nothing. He goes into work the next day, does the same thing, not aware that very much happened. Wills has got a pretty simple life. He lives in northwestern Washington, an African-American section of D.C. with his cat Tots. He was born to a single mom in Savannah, Georgia, never met his father, wasn't much interested in school, dropped out. Fortunately for him, a history teacher said, Wills, don't drop out. He did. Okay. If you're going to, sign up with this program called Job Corps, which he does. He moves up to Detroit. Job Corps is part of one of Lyndon Johnson's Great Society War and Poverty programs that can take inner city young men, and Wills at this time is in his early 20s, and get them ready for work. It's more than just providing work. They're also living together on army bases, Fort Custer, then an army base in his case. He's never been much out of his local town near where he grew up in Savannah. Really, this is a a big experience for him. That Job Corps program is going to be reduced by Richard Nixon, and that's something that certainly is noted by Wills. He goes on to work in the auto industry, doesn't like it. He takes that D.C. security job with a company that's contracting with the Watergate complex because it pays. 26000 in today's money or so, and that's with no high school degree. It's a full day later from the events of the burglary when Wills is home and bang on the door is a reporter from the Washington Post. Hi, sir. I'm contacting you about that burglary you were involved with. Okay. Willis and Sherlock, what are you talking about? This is not a big deal. That burglary is going to air on national news reports that day. Now, 
it still doesn't become the major Watergate scandal that we know. It's something that's reported on the news. The Washington Post is continuing to investigate it throughout 1972. The Democrats, at this point, their candidate is George McGovern. He keeps bringing it up as an issue. But possibly because of the atmosphere that it is an election campaign, and an election campaign, everything is suspect. Somebody says something, it's like, well, they're just trying to run. And because of that, the Watergate issue doesn't get much traction. It's after Nixon is reelected. And also there's some events at the court. And uh, one of the plumbers in the case to sends a letter to the, to the local judge that some wrong had been done. Witness testimony had been compromised. All hell breaks loose in Congress. So there still isn't much for Wills on all of this uh, until later. He gets a raise of 250 a week for his work here, claims to have asked for a promotion and didn't get it, and he ends up quitting the security job and doing some odd minimum wage jobs. It's not needed to recount the events of Watergate, except to say this. It becomes a really, really big story through 1974 when Nixon steps down, but it's also a pop culture event. There's almost a Watergate mania surrounding this, in addition to the political story that it is of Nixon resigning. Everything is swept up. Everyone's talking about this, watching on TV. The Watergate hearings are held during daytime, and it's replacing soap operas. And then the news is covering it again at night, especially when you reach 74 and Nixon actually steps down. Now, now people are finding this very alert security guard where he lives, who you're starting to find people interviewing this guy who brought down a president. Here's Geraldo Rivera. You're a, you're a black man. You're a poor man. If any group was uh, against the former president in, in political terms, it was the, the poor people, the black people, especially who voted almost overwhelmingly for George McGovern for president. Do you see any poetic significance of the fact that it was you that, that found that tape? What do you think? Well, uh, one thing is this. Uh, what really, after the speech that uh, the president made, he was saying something about uh, you shouldn't love, you shouldn't hate, um, I can't recall exactly word for word how he said that, that you shouldn't hate your enemies or whatever because it don't work out. I don't know exactly how he said it, but think, I think that really he found that out. Because all the people and all the things that he did so negatively, what happened, it sort of like came right back to his front door. And in what will be his best brush with fame, he is in the movie, all the president's men playing himself, a security job guard. He gets an agent, lawyer Dorsey Evans, and he and his agent seek to cash in. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. 
I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Evan sets up appearances. Reporters now have to pay for interviews. A New York Times uh, reporter reports having to pay $50 for an interview. Some have to pay as much as $300. About 25 appearances are set up where he'll speak for candidates, particularly African-American candidates running for office. He speaks in San Francisco for candidate for sheriff. Wills is overjoyed to an extent that he gets to visit this city that he hadn't seen. For the black community, this is now an example of a man who acted as an example in law enforcement, who brought down a president who was doing wrong. He's given an award by the NAACP and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He gets award money for those negotiated by his agent. With the Democratic National Committee, they're obviously very happy that he helped protect their offices. His agent, Evans, tries to negotiate a fee. The Democratic Party refuses to pay money to Wills, but they do give him a plaque. Evans suggests that they make Wills the detective for the Democratic Party. They are not into that. Wills does stuff like selling pictures of himself behind the Watergate complex for a dollar each at his events. An author, Henning, um, who had written a book about Frank Wills, I believe it's the only book written about Frank Wills, really looked at his story, added up the amount of money that he made in appearances and found that when you took out the cut that Evans was taking, which was 25% of anything he made, also had Wills change his phone number to his own office and reviewed anything, any letters that came in, Wills would have made more staying as a security guard. Evans, who himself is African-American, sees this as an issue. If he was not black, Wills says, he would be a national hero. No, I mean, there's something to this. This is why this story is more than just about Watergate. It's about race. And it's also about our society's current obsession, or has been, reality TV. You know, this was the proto-reality TV age. A lot of the side characters of Watergate become mini-celebrities. Gordon Liddy, after he serves prison time, is going to end up on Miami Vice. Yet for Wills, it just didn't seem to quite pan out. If it were in today's world where maybe you add more cable channels, more reality TV... I think someone like Wills would be quite famous. Now it was newspapers, magazines. Alex Haley, the author of Roots, who's going to be super famous during this time, interviews Wills at length, planning to do a book on him. But his attention span was short. Apparently he had a lot of projects going on at any one time. and He just didn't find enough drama in the uh, Wills story. A reporter who interviewed Wills found him both happy and bitter. I'm having the time of my life, he said, but in the same breath, he said, everyone is feeling sorry for Nixon, but not for Frank Wills, who put his life on the line. I just want a decent job, not plaques. 
Here's what one newspaper said. Evan says the reason he hasn't been able to do more for his client is that Wills is being victimized because he was black. If he was not black, Frank would be a national hero. He wouldn't have anything to worry about at all. There is a blanket conspiracy throughout the country to prevent Wills from getting what's due to him. There's a sizable group of Americans, white Americans, who feel he should not be honored for this discovery. The question, Times asks, is how many times must Wills be honored? As Wills' agent, Evans would like to play it out as long as possible. To that end, Evans completely controls Wills' access to the public. He claimed to have applied to Howard University, and they would not hire him because they were afraid of retaliation from the federal government. Howard University said this was not true, that he was not hired because he did not have a diploma. Another newspaper consulting with Evans found that Wills had been offered many different jobs through letters and various jobs he did take, didn't pan out. One security job that he was on, uh, he was taking so much time off for various appearances that they fired him. Wills, during this time, also started reading books on psychics and ESP, convinced that it was all too surreal to be a coincidence. My destiny was to come to Washington. Nixon cut the funds for the poor black people, and we, himself and the jury in the Watergate case, convicted the burglars, brought them down. But when Watergate was forgotten, he said, he just wanted to get out of the city. Just give me a glass of lemonade by an oak tree down by the pond. Wills would end up being hampered to some extent by his own agent, given a chance to receive a GED and possibly a federal government job during the Carter administration. Evans talks him out of it. It would interfere too much with his appearances. But eventually, uh, Evans and he split ways. He goes back down to North Augusta, Georgia, where he's living with his mom. And essentially, uh, finding some work here or there, living off the Social Security check that his mom gets, about 400 a month. We next see him appear in 1982. Now 35, Frank Wills is arrested allegedly for stealing shoes. Wills explains that he intended to pay for the shoes, but he has his 15-year-old son with him, and he doesn't want them him to see surprise gift. The clerk at the store says, nah, he put them away and he was intending to steal them and walk out. But here's the issue. Wills is given a one-year sentence for stealing a pair of shoes that in today's dollars would be $45, $16 then. This uh, is noted because of who he is. The NAACP picks up on it. Certain black mayors come arrive. Uh, the mayor of Newark, the mayor of Orange, New Jersey, come to support Frank Wills. This becomes a big crusade. Dick Gregory, civil rights activist and comedian, comes to support. They take the case appeal all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court refuses to hear it, which means Wills must serve this sentence. Fortunately for Wills, he serves only one week, and possibly because of all the publicity surrounding this case, he is released. Dick Gregory then hires him as a salesperson for his diet products, Wills doesn't really have much experience in sales. He works for him for a little bit, lives in the Bahamas for a bit. There's a falling out where Wills says that Gregory never paid him. Gregory says, yes, indeed, he did pay them, but that he had squandered the, Wills had squandered the money. Doesn't go well. And so really it comes down to on each of the anniversaries, 87, 92, 97, the media starts finding Willis 
during these interviews and asking him questions. In 1992, he's asked if he had it to do over again, would he like things to work out the same way? Wheels just responds, there's no point in that. It's just my destiny. That's like asking me if I'd rather be black than white. This is what Wills says. Bruce Givner, the man who we talked about, uh, who shared at least a brief, if anonymous, moment with Frank Wills, the security guard, was interviewed. He made his thoughts clear. Frank Wills foiled the burglary. But for him, they wouldn't have been caught. For Givner's own part, he compares himself to Zelig, a character from a Woody Allen movie who shows up in the background of myriad historic events. He doesn't think his role was very important. Um, Givner actually is accused initially of being a plant, and you can see how quickly that could happen, right? Because he doesn't give his name to Wills, and he's actually the guy leading Wills out the door. So a reporter kind of accuses his mom, but later the New York Times checks out his story. They buy it. that This is a guy that worked for the DNC, wasn't part of a secret GOP campaign or anything. Frank Wills dies in 2000. Um, there's competing, conflicting accounts. Even in 2000, AIDS is not something that people like to talk about. And so there's some accounts that that's what he died of. Officially, it was a brain tumor. The author, Adam Henning, suggests that it was from a blood transfusion. Um, he just was sick throughout most of his uh, most of the years leading up to 2000. Obviously, there are media stories upon his death. What does it matter to talk about a fellow like this? Well, the most important part of the story is exactly what was noted by a congressman speaking at during the debate over Nixon's impeachment, congressman from South Carolina who said, next time when something happens, there may not be a watchman in the night. A democracy requires alert citizens. And here's a famous example of one who probably didn't get his full credit. If you like the program, please tell someone about it. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Um, if you like it, please review the program, on, particularly on Apple Podcasts. I could really use one there. Thanks for listening.